and it was good. And I, when I say good, I don't mean average like we use the word today. I mean really good, very good. This was a world marked by harmony and peace. See, in this world, life thrived and work was a joy. I know that's hard to believe. Many of you just now coming from work, but work was meant to be a joy for us. And in this world, you could walk with your head held high because you were loved by God. And so you never had to look over your shoulder in fear. You never felt pressed down on your shoulders by guilt. And you never felt the need to hide because of shame. But the good, very good world quickly turned upside down because of sin. And men and women didn't merely just eat a bite of fruit. I mean, they did. They took a bite. But it was what that bite signified that really broke the world. You see, they were in this relationship with God who had promised to give them every joy and be their every satisfaction. As their creator, he made them. He knew them intimately. He knew what would make their heart sing. But instead of trusting in him and his word, they exchanged God's truth for a lie. And they decided to find their joy and satisfaction by going around God instead of finding it in God. And that broken trust broke our world. And the Bible uses lots of different words to describe this brokenness that permeates every fabric of our world. Sometimes the word unclean is used. And this speaks to the brokenness that's caused by pollution, right? Pollution is when you bring two things together that should never be brought together. It's corruption by the addition of an impurity. And sometimes the Bible will use this word transgression. And this speaks to the willful, disloyal rebellion of man against God. That's when we know intuitively what is right and wrong, yet we deliberately choose what is wrong and destructive. And sometimes the Bible just uses this word sin. In our modern day, that word seems so archaic, but it's a catch-all word for any attitude or action, whether it's trivial or paramount, unintentional or intentional, whether by commission or omission, anything that is offensive to a holy God. And the use of multiple words throughout Scripture to describe our sin really tells us about the comprehensive nature of our fallenness, doesn't it? It shows that the seriousness of our problem is such that we need a comprehensive solution because a sinful, broken people are offensive and disconnected from a holy God. And our brokenness can't just be ignored. We can't just uh, gleefully wish it away. It must be dealt with. God, because of his holiness and his perfection, just can't overlook our sin. And so the fall left, our, uh, uh, left humanity with three major problems. The first one is this. We are in need of redemption. We have given our allegiance, we've given ourselves to our sin, and we've become slaves to it. Our second big problem is this, that because of sin, men and women are guilty before a holy God. And, and this is wildly unpopular, we are deserving of wrath and punishment. And third, humanity became polluted with the stain and filth of sin. And so it begs the question, how will we ever become clean again? Because our pollution needs cleansing. Our rebellion needs peace. Our wickedness needs pardoning. 
and our utter failure needs forgiveness. And the solution to this great problem will not come without a great cost. In Psalm 103, God says that uh, the word says that God is so loving for that anyone who trusts in him, he will remove our sin and our transgression as far as the east is from the west. But how? How will he do that? In Exodus 34, when Moses sees the glory of God as he's passing by, these words are are, uh, declared by God. The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. And so on one hand, we have this loving God who will forgive us, but he won't do it by simply overlooking our sin. So how will God forgive our sin and not just glibly pass by the guilty? And it's to those answers tonight that we turn. Disobeying God seems so voluntary. It seems like a a conversation with a stranger, a gym membership, or maybe even a crummy television show. Sin seems like something that I can opt into and opt out of sometimes, anytime I want to. Like an email list, I think it's something that I can unsubscribe from and bam, no more sin issue. But I fool myself. See, disobeying God, sinning against God, is way more than that. Sin controls me. See, it controls us. When we disobey God, we stray from his commands and his purposes. And when we decide to live under our own rule and reign, we lose control. And we gain an evil taskmaster. We become slaves to sin. And sin is a relentless ruler to those it orders around. See, sin never offers true satisfaction to me, and and it never offers, offers an opportunity for me to leave. This is tragic in and of itself. But when you consider that, that I, that we also become unable to do and be who God made us to do and be, then the story just gets worse. See, sin is my master and I cannot escape. I cannot escape and return to who I'm supposed to be, which is a son of God. See, sin intends to end me and leaves me to my own device, essentially to die. I can't opt out. This is a hopeless and unending road. But then Christ, the Son of God, comes not just to the world, but to the cross. See, this Christ who obeyed every command of God and rejected every filthy and nasty lie and promise that Satan and sin could muster, came here, came to that cross. And on the cross, Christ died. Jesus bled actual blood and gasped for actual air until his body could breathe no more. It couldn't draw any more breath. And his blood spilt on that ground and on that cross, that blood that had never participated in the slightest bit of sin, that blood bought this slave. 
See, Jesus bought me. He bought us with His blood. He bought me. He bought you. Paul says in Ephesians 1.17, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So what is redemption? Simply put, redemption means getting something for a payment. That's what, that's what a common meaning would be. But specifically, in this, in this context, it means that God bought me. And he bought you out of slavery for himself with the blood of Christ. That cross that seems so many miles and so many sunsets ago, miles away, sunsets ago, means something to me. It means something to us. And it means it here tonight. See, it was Jesus shedding his own blood on that cross that bought me out of slavery to sin. It was Jesus shedding his own blood on that cross that made me God's own. See, we get to and should celebrate our freedom freedom from slavery to sin tonight and every night. Because it was never about me getting strong enough to break free. It was never that I snuck away. It was never that I turned the sin switch off. It has always been and always will be that the blood of Christ sets me free. It's always been and always will be that the blood of Christ sets you free. Sets you free. There's no other way, but there doesn't have to be or need to be. Christ is all we need. Our redemption only is always, is only always about Christ who redeemed by stepping into our place for our sin. Not express how sweet it is to my soul to belong to a family that has come to see the glory of Christ. And this is only by Jesus' grace. The night before Jesus died was the longest and the blackest and the fiercest night of his life. He could not sleep. He knew what was coming. Not only that he would be betrayed and that he would be beaten and that he would be crucified, but that the wrath of a holy God on our sin would be poured out on him. On this night, he went to a park that he had spent time with his disciples often. And he threw himself on the ground in prayer. And in anguish, he said these words. Father, all things are possible with you. Please remove this cup from me. Please, if there's any way, don't make me drink this cup. What is he talking about, cup? 
in Scripture, cup is a symbol of the pouring out of God's just wrath on sinners. When we say wrath, we are not talking about a sudden display of anger from a bad dad. That's not it. We are not talking about divine monster rage like a criminal. That's not wrath. We're not talking about a five-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. That's not wrath. Wrath is the good and the right and the necessary justice of God being sentenced on sinners. God is holy. And so wherever and whenever there is sin, he must act against it in justice. If he ever did not do this for a moment, if he ever just winked at sin or pushed it aside or shrugged his shoulders, the universe would unravel. It would come undone around us. And so here is our dilemma. How can sinners like us ever be justified before a God like this? When our hearts and our hands and our stories from beginning to end are marked by sin. Jesus knew how. He would drink the cup of God's wrath in our place and for our sins. He knew it. The justice of God that was necessarily headed for you and me and this world, like a freight train, would fall on Jesus. The beautiful Bible word for that is propitiation. It's a big word. It simply means wrath, removal, the taking away of wrath. Someone somehow satisfying the demands of justice. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. Every sin of yours Every sin of mine, finally and fully accounted for. Tonight we are trying to get our souls to feel the beauty and the wonder and the wildness and the import of that. To marvel and to revel and to weep and to wonder. Propitiation means there is no wrath left for you or for me, only mercy. In English, we've taken this word propitiation and we've created an adjective called propitious. That word means to be favorably disposed toward someone. Feel that with me. Because of the 
propitiation of the Son of God. God the Father is now always and only propitious towards you, moving towards you with kindness. The only cup we will ever have to drink is the cup of God's blessing and His grace. That is the gospel we remember tonight. Behold the Lamb of God. That's what John the Baptist would declare every single time he laid eyes on Jesus. If John so as much as saw Jesus out of the corner of his eye walking towards him, he would declare, Behold the Lamb of God. He said it so much, in fact, that two of his own disciples stopped following John and started following Jesus. For John, that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted his disciples to behold the Lamb of God. Why was John so adamant about this? What made these disciples stop following John the Baptist and follow this unknown man who grew up in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth? You see, it's what John said the Lamb of God would do. See, when John would see Jesus, he would declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here's why that's so compelling. Because you and I all know that no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, we can't remove the stain of our sin. Here's what I mean. Think about your tendency when you create a conflict in a relationship, when you wrong somebody. You, you feel a guilt, you feel a shame. And so some of us tend to work really hard. Some of us bend over backwards in order to cover our offenses. We want to make sure that our relationship is back on solid ground. Why? Because we're trying to cover up the offense. Now others of us tend to minimize our wrongs. We, we downplay them. We try to uh, bring them low. And we say it's not that bad. We, we think minimizing it and forgetting about it and putting it out of sight will just make it go away. Why? Because we can't deal with the stain that our actions cause a negative consequence. You see, we do this all the time. But if you've been there, if you've been in that situation, what have you realized about what you do? None of it can actually cover up the offense. None of it can actually remove the stain of sin. None of them work. Sure, trying harder, doing better next time might temporarily make the situation better, make you feel less guilty, less shameful, but there is nothing you can do to address the sin that you've already committed. Which brings us to why Good Friday should be good news to our souls. Because on this day that Jesus died, he not only redeemed us from the slavery of sin, he not only uh, took on the penalty of our sin, but he also takes away the stain of our sin forever. This made sense to God's people. See, on the Day of Atonement, when God's people would deal with sin, they would have 
two sacrifices. They would bring two animals to sacrifice. Uh, On one, the priest would lift his hands up to God and ask God for mercy before bringing death down to the goat. See, symbolizing God's punishment for sin, for the wages of sin is death. The goat stood in the place of the people. The goat died and the people lived. And the priest would then take the second goat in. And he would actually lay his hand straight onto this goat, and he would transfer the sins of the people onto this goat. And this is where we get the term scapegoat. And on this unblemished and spotless animal, everyone's sin was transferred. And instead of bringing death to this animal, what they would do is they would chase this animal out, far out into the wilderness to never come back again. See, the sins of God's people that were transferred onto this animal were literally taken away. We call that expiation. God's people knew all of this pointed to the reality that one day a Savior would come and make a final sacrifice to save them. And on this Good Friday, Jesus didn't secure two goats for us. He gave up himself. He was the once-for-all sacrifice for his people. He was the perfect and unblemished lamb. He was not a lamb that we had to go and secure for ourselves. He was the lamb of God. God gave us the lamb. See, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be, uh, become the righteousness of God. Jesus was our scapegoat. Our sin was laid upon him. And he was crucified far outside the city. And because of that, you and I are clean forever. He removes the stain of our sin forever. As the psalmist says, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. Seven Mile Road, do you now see why John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.